All right, so throughout our press series, I have tried my best to contrast for you the Christian and the secular response to suffering. Now remember, secularism is the belief in the idea that there is no God. God is not the cause or the explanation or the reason for all that's happened. It is a worldview than how you view relationships, life, money, etc., with the idea that there is no God. Throughout this time, I have said that evil and suffering are actually not the greatest threats to Christianity. The liberal, the agnostic, the atheist like to be able to push evil and suffering onto the Christian and say, explain that. And because there is evil and suffering, God does not exist. But throughout this series, I've been hard-pressed upon you to impress upon your mind and heart that evil and suffering are the greatest threats to a secular worldview, not to a Christian worldview. I fear that many of us, because we live in America, where it is safe, still relatively safe, to say that we are Christian by name, that we say that we're Christian in name, but we're actually not Christian in how we live daily. We may attend a church on a Sunday morning, but come time for the buffet on Sunday afternoon, all the way through to Saturday night, there is no real idea present in our lives that Jesus is real, he is active, and he is working, and our lives come underneath him. We actually call this nominalism, that you're Christian in name, but there's actually no proof, no facts, no details in the actual lifestyle that you are Christian in function. I think this is especially true and shines for us in suffering. Suffering is actually, I believe, a key topic to talk to people who do not believe in Jesus. Now, here's what I mean. If you talk to a secular person, whether agnostic or atheist, and you begin to talk to them about suffering, and you say, hey, do you believe in there's such a thing as injustice? And they may say, well, what, what do you mean by injustice? I say, well, do you believe that there is such a thing that murder or rape or pedophilia or fill in the blank, whatever you want to choose, do you actually believe that that is evil? Do you believe that it is unjust for a human being to experience those things? Now, most secular people that I know, agnostic or atheist, will say yes. In fact, they will say, I am morally outraged by this. But the question you would have to ask them is, why the outrage? Why the outrage at murder or rape or pedophilia? If God does not exist, if God is not creator, if God is not the standard of not relative but absolute truth, if an individual person gets to define what is true for them, why should you be outraged? All they are doing is living out the cultural norm that you get to define truth. And I think here, I actually have a little bit more respect for the agnostic than I do for the person who is secular or claims to be atheistic. Because an agnostic will say, everything is meaningless. There's no true moral fabric or being to anything that we do. Whether it is giving your wealth away, 
or whether it is murder. Life is meaningless. There's nothing, there's nothing that anything's moving towards. C.S. Lewis, who was once formerly an atheist, and thank God, thank God that he used a Catholic Christian by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien to show him the gospel. Because C.S. Lewis actually, and I, I believe this may have been over a series of recordings he gave to BBC a long time ago, he came up with this illustration for understanding secularism, evil, suffering, and injustice. And it, and it goes something like this. And I, I pray I do him justice. He, he says something like this. He goes, do fish know that they're wet? Do fish have any idea cognitively that they are soaked? That water is all around them? The answer, of course, is no. Why? Because they're immersed in it. They were created for it. Being immersed in water is the means by which they live and move and thrive and grow and complete their function for why they're here on this earth, like fish fries, right? <laughs> C.S. Lewis didn't say that. But if you take a fish out of their environment and you put them in an environment that they were not created for, you let air fill their lungs instead of water, and they will be outraged. They will rage until they die, right? Why does someone who doesn't truly know, love, and live for God feel injustice? C.S. Lewis would say it's because they're fish out of water. That is why they feel injustice. Even though they don't believe in God, they still feel injustice. This world and its current condition is not the world that we were created for. Even a secular person who has no horse in the race of religion deeply reacts to injustice because they too were made for a different world, a world that is without evil and suffering and injustice. And tragically, their refusal to see and enjoy God as the standard of absolute moral truth for their lives, it actually results in a fish-out-of-water lifestyle. And so make no mistake, the secular person may be looking Instagram-worthy, and they may put the smile on, and their life looks really good, but inside they are barely breathing. No, in fact, they are dead spiritually. They will rage until they die. The experience of injustice and evil and suffering, it proves that you and I were made for another world. The agnostic is correct. If there really is no God, then there is no basis for you to slap me on the face and me to be hurt by it and me to be enraged that you just did that to me. It just is. Fish don't complain because they're immersed in water. Wet was made for them to flourish. The experience of injustice and evil and suffering proves that secularism as an ideal to live by is a dead hope. You'll still have a deep need for justice, yet you will not have a satisfying way to resolve it. Because at the end of the day, you set yourself up to be the judge 
of what is right and what is wrong. In essence, you are that fish out of water. Today, we're going to see that the greatest injustice in human history is the cross of Jesus. And we're going to see why Jesus took injustice upon himself. And then we're going to see the Christian response to suffering and what it should be based on the suffering that Jesus bore on his shoulders for you and for me, his church. Let's get to our proposition. So what I pray that the Holy Spirit convinces you of today is this, is that Jesus is the only one who can shepherd your soul because he is the only one who took on your suffering. Suffering gives us a glimpse into who we really are, into what we really value, find meaning and significance in. This has been a motif in all of the press sermons throughout the early year. I want to throw at you another quote by Heath Fernando. Now remember, Heath is, he wrote a book about pain and, uh, pain and suffering in pastoral ministry. That's been very near and dear to my heart. Something I read in my probably year three, four, five of me being a pastor. There's a lot of transition, a lot of turmoil, a lot of hurt. And usually year three through five, pastors figure out, are we going to run for the hills or are we going to put our roots down? And then they work things out from year five to year ten. A lot of pastors don't sit in a place for 10 years. They usually run for the hills or they move up the corporate church ladder in America. That's unheard of in the East, but it's present here in the West. And he's been really a balm to my soul over the years. And it's been sweet revisiting some of his quotes that I had underlined from years past to help resolve a lot of hurt, pastoral hurts in my life. And here's what he says. He says, suffering brings real issues of life to the surface. In the midst of suffering, you see what a person has lived for has served him or her well. Right? That's good. Whether you are Christian, secular, atheist, agnostic, you are relying on someone or something to get through the day, even if it's just yourself. And Dr. Keller says this all the time. He says, whatever it is that you rely on is your functional God. Suffering shows you whether you are relying, whatever it is that you are relying on is strong enough. Now, deep down, we all want to rely on someone or something that we think will help us get through the day. Peter Berger, that sociologist who wrote The Sacred Canopy, I told you I read him in my undergrad years, he says something like this in The Sacred Canopy. He says that all places and at all times, People long to bestow meaning on their experience of evil and suffering. Think about that. doesn't matter where you are. South Africa, Southeast Asia, or here in the West, Central America, all people at all times long to bestow some kind of meaning of what they experience, especially suffering and evil. Whether you are Christian, secular, atheist, agnostic, you want to find meaning and value in the things that you are going through and what you are experiencing. And we have to ask, why are we like this as creatures? I don't think that basset hounds do this, do you? There is something that sets us apart from the animal kingdom in this. I don't think baboons are scratching themselves, eating their bananas and wondering, why am I hurting today? This is something distinctively human about us. Why are we like this? 
And it is because you have a creator. His name is Yahweh, Yeshua. And he created you to enjoy him above all things. Those old Presbyterians have it right. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. As Christians, we find purpose and meaning in our sufferings because God did not sit idly by on his throne. Unlike any other religion, not a demigod coming to earth, not just a force coming to earth, not just a God who stays up there. He's so transcendent. He never comes down. In fact, it's a heinous sin to ever believe that God would come down. That's Islam. Christians distinctively believe that God took on flesh to take on evil and suffering. It's unique in any other idea on this planet. And that is why any other religion and any other philosophy will always fail to fully resolve evil and suffering because they don't have a point of view of Jesus or they don't have a strong enough point of view of Jesus because for the Muslims, Jesus is just one prophet among a line of prophets of which Muhammad is chief. Eastern religions will say, we're not going to discredit you. We think that Jesus is real. He's just another part of the, the all-soul doing his own thing for the Brahma, for the all-soul. Only something more powerful than evil and suffering can deal with evil and suffering. And only Christianity has God taking on flesh to take on evil. And God did this in Jesus. And because Jesus took on flesh to take on evil and suffering, Jesus alone can shepherd your soul through all of life's ebbs and flows, prosperity and adversity, joy and suffering. But here's the problem. You and I have a problem. Not personally. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Human history has taught us well one simple truth. From Adam and Eve to us today, 21st century in Branchton, we do not want a shepherd. We do not want to be led. We don't. Even if you're sitting in this room appearing to want to be led does not mean you want to be led. This is especially true in the West and in America. Oh, that, that Thoreau, that philosopher Thoreau, created this idea called self-reliance here in America in the 1700s. And America took that hook and we put it through our cheeks. And we have believed in it is real to sin. America's number one value is individualism. In the East, the East does not really struggle with individualism. They value community. Here in the West, we struggle with individualism. Putting the individual above the community. It's about self-fulfillment. What I want for me, myself, and I, my family is more important than you. And we value that over everything. We do not want anyone to lead us, to guide us, or to tell us what to do. Dr. Keller says that in the West, we actually see suffering as an interruption to your perceived sense of freedom to live life as you see happiest. The American ideal from our founding fathers that life is about the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, right? Right? 
and we see suffering as a roadblock, an interruption for you to live the happiest life that you want to live. And that is another reason why suffering is the greater challenge to secularism than it is to Christianity. As Christians, though suffering hurts us and grieves us, and we learned last week that our Father does not inflict us willingly from Lamentations 3, but Christians do not see suffering as interruptions to our joy. At least we shouldn't. We see it as a way to experience joy in Jesus. Because long before we experienced that suffering, he bore it first. So when a Christian suffers, yes, we do look sad and gloomy and we lament inside and out. But underneath, there is still a joy that our enemy cannot take away from us, an indestructible joy. But when a secular person suffers, yes, they may look happy and excited about life, joyful on the outside. But when that suffering comes, just like with us, it melts away things on the outside. It melts away temporary happiness. And then we get to the core of what drives that person. And we see that even though it looks like there is happiness on the outside, there's deep hurt on the inside. And why is that? Because a secular person, because they refuse to acknowledge that there is a God, he is real, he is creator, he is a standard of moral truth, and our lives must come under him, because they reject that, they must put their hope in temporary things, like romance, like money, like position, power, hobbies. And when that thing is taken away, when the rains come, the winds drive against the house, the floods come, Jesus says, great is that fall, right? When you build your life on anything other than Jesus, it's shifting sand. And when that thing is taken away, their joy is taken away. The Christian can have joy in suffering because Jesus doesn't go away in suffering. And the cross proves that. Jesus is God and man who took on our suffering for our joy in him. And that is what our text is about today. So let's get started with our first point. What we're going to see in, um, in these collection of verses right now is Jesus, that he suffered your sorrows and he suffered your sins so you may find life in his death. Now, Peter is teaching us a reason for suffering right now. A reason. There's 10,000 innumerable. But this is one reason for suffering today. Suffering reveals our calling. Suffering reveals our mission in this life. And that is exactly where, and I've been clear since the first Sunday in January, that looking back on recent times, this is where I believe that heritage is struggling right now. Suffering has caused us to give up on our calling, to give up on our mission, and to take our little chickies and just to put them underneath our wings because it's hard right now. Satan wants to use suffering to destroy our calling and to distract us from our mission. But Jesus died to restore our desire to live out the reason why God created us. 
Now let me put scripture to it. Let's take a look at verse 21. Peter explicitly says, you have been called for this purpose. Basis, since Christ also suffered for you. Result, this has left you an example for you to follow in his steps. It's clear. Jesus suffered to leave you an example. To be your example, Jesus had to take on flesh. Once again, that is how serious God is about evil and suffering in your misery and my misery. He is so serious about ending it, he would end his son. So we ask, this side of the cross, why do Christians suffer? Why is there still suffering in this world? And why is it that his own people feel it over and over and over again? And Peter says that the Christian still suffers in part, because there's 10,000 reasons, in part, so that you and I can fulfill our calling and our mission. There is something about the nature of suffering that melts and burns away the things that are excess in our lives, which is why we say suffering is a fire. Your mission in this life is the same, whether you're experiencing adversity or prosperity, whether it's a season of joy or sorrow, your mission in this life is the same. Adversity and prosperity have the ability to make you feel like that's not your mission in life. But this series is not about prosperity necessarily, though I just sprinkle in some comments about it. Your mission in this life is to follow in his steps. And where did the steps of Jesus end? Golgotha, right? This means you are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus for those that God has put into your life. And here at Heritage, in our very first members meeting of this year, I asked you, what do you believe this church is here for? And it was Satina in our members meeting, I remember vividly said, to be his hands and feet. So we have recentered on this idea. We exist to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I have to ask you, what happened to Jesus' hands and feet? Nail scarred, right? Suffering is laced and layered into your mission, your purpose, your calling into this life. And to be a Christian, I think we have to be upfront. This is what the Christian life is about. We are not here for ourselves. There's a reason why we're here. There's a reason why our Lord was here. And to accomplish it, nails had to go through him. And at times, nails, metaphorically, must go through us. The question I want to ask you is this. What would happen in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, with your money? Since we are individualistic, it's all about us, right? It's all about you. So I'm putting it on for some personal motivation here. What would your personal life, your marriage, your family, your workplace, your money, I'll tackle on our church, say our society, what would it actually look like if you as a Christian embraced this calling? What would it look like? What would it look like if you truly believed that you suffer to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the people that God has put into your life? We'll leave that unanswered. Let's get to verses 22 and the first part of 23. Peter continues and says that Jesus committed no sin. 
nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. We have consistently maintained in our press series that Jesus is the ultimate Job. Amen? This is a good example. Jesus did not sin, yet he experienced the ultimate consequences for sin. Jesus did not revile. Others reviled him. He did not respond or retaliate. As Americans, we're really big on vengeance and payback, right? But not Jesus. We'll see why in a moment. When Jesus suffered, he did not use his words to hurt people. Now, in counseling, we use this phrase to help understand some of the motivations for why people are acting and speaking the way that they are. And we, we use this phrase that hurt people hurt people. You may have heard me tell you, sometimes for one-on-one, that hurt people hurt people. This is true for every single person in existence except for Jesus. You see that? Like even me. Why am I hurting you? Maybe somewhere deep down, I'm hurt. And that's how we cope with hurt. We hurt people when we're hurt. Jesus was hurt by people, but he did not retaliate and hurt in response. No other worldview has Jesus except for Christianity. Jesus did all of this to suffer our sorrows and to bear our shame, which most of the time is our motivation for why we hurt people, because we feel ashamed. Now we have to ask, how is Jesus able to do this, right? And I do not like that pat answer of, because he's God. I think that's a cop-out. I think it's, it's weak theologically. And thankfully, Peter tells us how Jesus was able to do this. It's moving on into the rest of verse 23 into verse 24. How did he do this? Here's the contrast. What contrast with being reviled, not reviling in return? Contrast. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how he was able to not revile when he was being reviled on the cross. And because of this, he, was, he himself was able to bear our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus was able to suffer our sorrows and bear our sins because he entrusted himself to God as his father. Take a look at how Peter describes this trust. He entrusted himself to his father as the righteous judge. I'm taking adverb and verb, and I'm making it into adjective noun, if you're okay with that. The one who judges righteously is the righteous judge. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, with Father forsaking him, he still trusted in God as the righteous judge. And that is why when he was reviled, he didn't say a word. Even though he was hurt, he didn't hurt people. Unlike any other person in human history. Therefore, though, to be a Christian means, I believe, you must have a high sense of justice. You must. And highest above all, did you have God reserved as the ultimate judge? We groan and we lament that there is no law enforcement and there is no judicial process that can truly, fully, and totally deal with evil and suffering. All that's pointing that we need a bigger judge. 
than what humanity has given to us. And the cross is that ultimate judges, judgment on evil and suffering. Evil and suffering must die. That's what the cross means. And there's only one way that evil and suffering could die. Not that you take your revenge on that person. Not that you hurt because you're hurt. And I feel it that too, Heritage. The only way that evil and suffering could die was that someone more powerful than evil and suffering would take it on and take it to his death and eventually with his return, take it to bed and be done with it. As Jesus felt forsaken by his father on the cross, Jesus still trusted in his father as the ultimate judge. This is how Jesus suffered our sorrows and bore our sins. And because of this, we can wholeheartedly agree with Dr. Keller, where he says that suffering is not meaningless. i got to say this again to you. Suffering is not meaningless. How, Dr. Keller? Neither in general or particular senses. For God has purposed to defeat evil so exhaustively on the cross that all the ravages of evil will someday be undone. And we despite participating in it deeply, will be saved. And let's leave that up for a moment. Dr. Keller is right. Suffering is not meaningless. So we respectfully disagree with the agnostic. And we're actually more in a truer camp with those who are secular and those who are atheistic, because even atheists believe that their suffering has some sort of value. Remember Nietzsche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Comes to a pop culture song today. Even atheists believe that there's value in their suffering. Why they believe that without a God, that's for you to dig in and press in and challenge them about. Because the agnostic is right. But I think that finding meaning in your suffering begins when you see your personal participation in evil and suffering. And that is why we do not want anybody over us. Because we do not want to feel bad. We just don't. But Dr. Keller is right. Finding meaning begins by seeing our participation in evil and suffering. In fact, becoming a Christian necessitates confessing the evil and suffering that we have inflicted upon others. Why Jesus teaches us to pray, which we're going to get to this year, to forgive us our trespasses first, as we forgive those who trespass against us. In America, we like to invert it, right? You've, you've hurt me, we focus on that. But Jesus' prayer inverts it, as he should. Because in the deepest sense, our participation in evil and suffering led our Lord to the cross. Not another person's suffering, our evil and suffering that we have caused. Jesus took the cross and with it the suffering that we have caused and we have experienced so that we could find life in his death. Therefore, there is no sense in which suffering is meaningless because Jesus died to take on evil and suffering so we can find meaning in it. The cross is so powerful that Jesus exhaustively defeated evil 
And Jesus did this by becoming exhausted to the point of death. You have to remember, at some point after suffering, he screams out, I am thirsty! This is the God who turned water into wine for his first miracle, right? His first sign. And the God who turned water into wine is the God who thirsted on the cross. Jesus was able to do this because he entrusted himself to his Father as judge. And entrusting ourselves to God is the subject of our application. We suffer so that we can learn, like Jesus, to entrust ourselves to God as Father, Redeemer, and Judge. So let's get to application. And the application for you and I today is to yield. Oh, we don't like that word. We'll get to that. Yield to Jesus' shepherding when suffering tempts you to stray. I intentionally selected the word yield as our application word and focus for two reasons. Many of you may not know this, but I spend countless of hours in how to phrase things correctly. And then I come into the experience and then there's too much ad-libbing and I mess it up a lot. But I spend countless hours precisely working on words. And I struggled with this word at first and decided to go there for two reasons. Number one, the Greek word that gets translated into our English word for entrust is actually better translated if we use the word yield. It should be yield, is what I'm arguing. And then add on to that, number two, that as Americans, we do not like to yield. And we do not like to yield because we drink the cultural Kool-Aid to value individualism above community. The East has it right, and we have it wrong. And the pendulum needs to shift a little bit more. So when we become Christians in America, we have this deep struggle about yielding. Yielding to God, yielding to what his word says, yielding to what people say, brothers and sisters in Christ, your fellow hands and feet. We have problems yielding. We have such problems yielding, we cannot even yield to a yield sign when we're driving. Right? Let's go, because if we're not moving forward, we're not achieving in this life, and you feel ashamed, right? Yet yielding is exactly where Christianity starts. Yielding is how Jesus survived the horrors of the cross. He entrusted, he yielded himself to his Father as judge. Yielding to Jesus as our shepherd is precisely how we are going to survive the suffering that comes our way and yet sustain joy in this life while we wait for his return. One more verse to take a look at, and then we're done. Verse 25. Peter says, for, that's causation. Why did Jesus do all of this? Revile and not revile in return. Bear the cross and its shame and its sins. For this reason. You were continually straying like sheep. But now, because of the cross, you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Here is something that you must add to your theology of suffering. Before, if you are blessed right now, that the fire is not raging, you have to arm your mind and your heart with this now. That's what Heath Fernandez said. I share this with you. In the calm times, you have to prepare. 
Floridians, we don't like to prepare for disaster, right? Because <laughs> it's never going to hit us. And then just a random thunderstorm happens in the middle of March and does more damage than, right? Yep. Yep. Remember that a couple years ago? It's crazy. Everything down in this area. Before your next suffering comes, you must arm your mind with the idea that suffering is going to tempt you to stray from Jesus. Even me? Even you. Even me. Every suffering is going to tempt you to stray from Jesus. Suffering has the power, the ability for you, because you are sheep, to stray from your shepherd. Because suffering, as we have discussed, it tempts you to focus on yourself. Suffering tempts you to selfishness. It's about me. It's about my pain, the my stuff. And I can't listen to God. I can't be around community. I can't do church. I can't do success. I am in pain right now. I need a self-care day. Right? That's what suffering does. Suffering reveals the nature of your relationship with Jesus. That was last week. Suffering reveals that you're sheep and that Jesus is your shepherd. And as sheep, any of you who have tended to animals, but sheep in particular, it is natural for them to stray from other sheep and from their shepherd. Therefore, as sheep, it is quite natural and human for you to stray from church, from church community, and from your ultimate shepherd. And I want to focus on this idea just for a moment of Jesus as a suffering shepherd. So give me a moment. Jesus called himself the good shepherd, right? Do you remember we savored through the Gospel of John? It took us two and a half years to enjoy every morsel of the Gospel of John together as a church family. Remember that? And we went through John 15 together. And we have to ask, and be reminded, how is Jesus the good shepherd? And in that chapter, Jesus spoke about that there's a sheepfold. There's a sheep pen. There's a gate to it. He also calls himself the gate and the door, but that's a different, different thing. But he also spoke about that in the life of these sheep, there's these hired hands. Do you remember that? And with these hired hands, when troubles come, when threat or op, you know, um, adversity comes their way, the hired hands run because there's a sense of ownership in the sheep. They get paid to do a job, and so when it gets hard, they move on to different pastures, thinking there's always a greener pasture out there. A lot of pastors do this, unfortunately. Somebody asked me recently, like, Joe, like, are you, are you going to be leaving us after year 10? And I'm like, we just built a house right here. Why am I going to go pastor a church 10 minutes down the road when I'm doing it right here? Why? It doesn't make any sense. Unless you're a hired hand, Right? When the biggest adversity arrives in John 15, which Jesus calls the wolf, there's this ravenous wolf, and he is skulking and lurking, and he sees this fold. And he begins to approach the sheep pen. Jesus is there, and he has no hired hand, and he does not run away. Instead, Jesus stands in front of the gate, the door, and he lays his body down. And Jesus, as good shepherd, is big enough that this wolf feasts on Jesus as the shepherd 
instead of you a sheep. That's John 15. The wolf satisfies the ravenous hunger on this shepherd. And the appetite is gone for you. Now I want you to think about Peter for a moment. When the wolf came, when the adversity struck, Jesus was clear on the night that he was betrayed. He told the apostles, all of you are going to scatter. All of them, right? And Peter was included. He snuck around for a while just trying to see what's going on. Oh, no, no, I'm not a, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Like, you sound just like him, dude. No, I'm not. Let's see what's going on with Jesus, right? Did it for a while. But eventually Peter scattered. But Jesus did not leave him there, did he? He pursued Peter. And after the resurrection, Jesus told the Marys to tell the apostles to leave Jerusalem, go up north to Galilee, and there they will see him again. He was true to his word, right? Peter is fishing, good old country boy, right? Want to go fishing. Out all night, caught nothing. He's with his buddies. Some of them are the apostles as well, fellow apostles. And John sees Jesus on the seaside, fire going, breakfast being prepared. And in that seaside breakfast, a lot of hard things were said to Peter, right? Peter's human too. He wants nobody to rule over him. He doesn't like to be led, be told what to do. But Jesus said a lot of hard things to him. And he used repetition, right? Three times saying the same thing. And in this seaside breakfast conversation, Jesus restored Peter's calling, his mission, his reason for existence. Remember, he went back to fishing when Jesus said, drop your nets, leave your family, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men, right? That's purpose and mission. But now he mixes metaphors a little bit. And in the closing of the Gospel of John, Jesus calls on Peter to be shepherd too. Jesus is not calling Peter to be the ultimate shepherd. We do not believe in human beings as the papa, as the pope. We do not. We believe that Jesus called Peter not to papal authority, but to be what we would call more precisely to be an under-shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He is the head of the church. Jesus is. But he does call human beings, he calls men to be under-shepherds. That is an office of Jesus' church with him as head. Now, why is this important? In the New Testament, there are three Greek words that are used interchangeably to teach you as a Christian the role and the office, the responsibility of a pastor. And you want to know what? Two of them are used here. Right there, that's the word for pastor. It should say pastor, poiemas. And then this one, episkopos, where we get the Episcopalian church, the church of England, outside of England. It's that word. Jesus is the ultimate pastor. Jesus, suffering as our shepherd, has the power to end our straying in suffering. Satan wants to use suffering to cause us to stray from God if it's possible, to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Jesus uses suffering on the cross to cause us to return to God and to reignite in our souls 
the very reason why we exist. Jesus is the ultimate pastor, shepherd, and guardian of the soul. And here's the thing. Jesus has not left his sheep without a literal, physical, tangible shepherd. He is not here in the flesh. His body is the church. And towards that, he calls not ultimate shepherds, not papas, not popes, but under shepherds from the sheep who are not hired hands, who leave for better money or better opportunities or when it gets hard, who stays put and shepherds the flock of God until he returns or until God calls him truly to something new. The office of pastor, shepherd, guardian, and elder brother is still alive today. And suffering is meant to reveal your need for a shepherd in the ultimate sense for Jesus as shepherd, but then also practically for you to lose your life in church community with your brothers and sisters and with shepherds, plural. And I've told you since day one, one of the marks of why this church has struggled so much is because God calls pastors to a church. Not just one. It's too hard. Suffering reveals your need for Jesus. You have that ultimately in Jesus, and practically you have that in your brothers and sisters in Christ. All Christians are sheep. All sheep need a sheep fold. Therefore, all Christians need church community. Did you get that deductive reasoning? Okay. If you bought into the American ideal of individualism over community, you are going to struggle to yield to Jesus as your shepherd. And when you suffer, Jesus wants you to yield by opening up your life to him as your shepherd. Jesus wants you to yield to him by opening up your life to his body, because he's not here physically, but his body, the church, is. So where does this leave you? I do believe that you need to ask yourself if you have a yielding problem. And if you're like, not I, Lord, that is a telltale sign you have a yielding problem. And trust me, I, I hear of how you talk about your jobs and people in position and how they talk to you and how they treat you and how they ruffle your feathers. We have yielding problems. And the ultimate reason why you have a problem with that person who's just over you is you have a problem with the ultimate God who's over you. And to be a Christian, you must reconcile that. Don't be too hard on yourself. It's natural. It's human. It's human. We all have yielding problems. To be a Christian... That's where Christianity starts. So do you have a problem yielding to Jesus? His spirits? His word? His under-shepherds? Brothers and sisters, hands and feet in Christ? If so, I do believe that your suffering is going to be complicated when it comes your way. It will be. But what if by the Holy Spirit, because only the Holy Spirit can quicken your heart in your soul. I can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can. But what if by the Holy Spirit you come to say, yes, I do have a yielding problem. Not just on the road, 
with anybody in my life. I do have a yielding problem. What do I do? I think first today, you got to confess it. You can do that right now in your heart. You don't have to say, Heritage, I confess. You do it in your heart right now. Holy Spirit's prompting you. You confess it back to him. Yes, I have a yielding problem. I have a problem with authority, people. I have a problem. From that shift manager all the way up to God. Our culture has ingrained individualism into you. No one can tell you what to do with your body, your marriage, your kids, your money, your time. And I have the wounds pastorally here to show it to you. I do. When life is ultimately about you and yours, you can't yield. Not to Jesus, not to his word, and not to his people. And unfortunately, you actually diminish the very thing that you're seeking which is something just to get through the pain. It's ironic that the one thing you need, you're cutting yourself off of because of your individualism. Now contrast that with Jesus. Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but didn't stop there. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Jesus did not express rugged individualism He knew how to yield when his flesh said, self-preservation, right? Suffering and evil came his way. The suffering and evil that we have caused and the suffering and evil that we have experienced, and he yielded to it. The wolf came. He put himself at the door to the sheep, and the wolf ate him. And because of how Jesus yielded, what this means for you, so you can give up on that Americana, empty pursuit of individualism as the pathway to happiness. And instead, you can follow in the footsteps of your suffering shepherd. Jesus is your ultimate shepherd. He is your ultimate pastor. He is the head of the church, and he is your head. Hey, guys, we'll talk about this in Kindred today. Be prepared. We're going to talk about headship today. Can't wait. I love how things mix together. And I was supposed to preach this sermon on this day. It was supposed to be last Sunday. This is great. I love it. God's so good. Jesus experienced your pain so you could find life in his death. Suffering will show you that you are not strong enough on your own. In fact, there's nothing on this planet strong enough for you to deal with suffering and sorrow on your own. There's no religion, no philosophy. No social media coach that can help you truly get through evil and suffering. Suffering will show you that only Jesus is strong enough to take it on, and he did just that on the cross. So yield to Jesus as your suffering shepherd, and by his death you will have life. You'll have purpose. You'll have meaning, no matter what kind of suffering comes your way. Amen?